0: Namo etasa bhagavato arhatuva sadmasam buddhasa Namo etasa bhagavatu arhatuva sadmasam buddhasa Namo etasa bhagavatu arhatuva sadmasam buddhasa Udanga mangsa namasami It was lovely to be here tonight. Coming down in the in the car, there was rainbows on the way, so it felt very auspicious. Sometimes um, the weather patterns change and do weird things at special times, and the kind of the way that comes together is a is just an indication of new possibilities or new openings or a way of of uh, just. Feels auspicious, so I was happy to see the rainbows tonight. Um, in the in the Buddhist teachings, there's three um, fundamental aspects of dukkha, anatta, and anicca change in, in uh, the quality of not self and the quality of suffering. And for many of us, our access into the path or into the teachings is through suffering. So suffering isn't the only gateway but it's a really big one. <laughs> and within the suffering, you know, there's different kinds of suffering. There's suffering of physical pain, there's suffering of emotional pain, there's suffering of change, and then there's suffering of conditioned existence. In one of the classical stories which is taught is the is the story of Kisa Gotami who had a baby and the baby died. And she just completely lost it with grief, so she went around with her baby who was dead, you know, desperate to find a medicine that would make this baby recover. And so they went. Um, she found people, and they said, "Well, the only physician that we know that would be really be able to help you with this is the Buddha, you know. So go check out the Buddha and see what the Buddha has to say." So she went with her dead baby to the Buddha, and she said, you know, can you give me a medicine that will help me so that this baby will recover? And he said, yeah. He said, go to the house of a person who's never experienced death, and ask them for a mustard seed. And with that mustard seed, we'll be able to make a medicine, and that medicine is going to be able to bring your baby back to life. So she went from house to 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 house. house. Some lost a father or a mother or an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother or a child. There was no one who hadn't lost somebody. Everyone had experienced death. So after she'd carried her dead child against her chest throughout the whole village and realized that there was no one who had a mustard seed in a house that hadn't experienced death, And something in her opened up as she began to realize the universality of this condition, that when there is birth, then the condition that follows is death. And with that realization, her heart moved from being one that was completely overcome with grief, to one where there was a profound sense of understanding. And that understanding was a gateway for her to enter into the stream of the Dhamma and see things clearly. And so this story is illuminating of the fact that there's some kind of universal qualities of suffering that we experience, and when we wake up to them, it tends to take some of the, this, the problem that this is only me or my problem or my suffering and, and puts it into a much bigger perspective, and this larger perspective helps the whole thing settle out. It's been my experience that, you know, I've come to practice, and with a mixture of motivations, and it took a long time to begin to realize some of the mixture of my motivations. Because what I was aware of on the onset was only the positive aspect of them. And after being in the monastery for a long time and seeing, well, some of what was actually driving me into practice was unwholesome motivations or I was picking up the teachings in a way that was reinforcing parts of my experience that wasn't particularly helpful. And so one can look at the teachings as a kind of universal panacea that if one meditates long enough or hard enough or does it right enough, then everything is going to go voop, voop, and it's going to be evaporated and gone. And I think what's needed is a certain amount of finesse and sophistication to begin to bring the teachings to our own personal experience in a way which is applicable. So, you know, in January, I slipped on the ice and I broke my arm, and the next morning I went to the hospital and I had it set, put in a cast, and, and and then I started doing all kinds of different healing things. So, you know, that's generally the way we work it we work it at the grossest level first and then we work it at much more subtle levels so if i had gotten my broken arm and then i started doing chanting or pujas or meditation people would have said sister something's wrong go to the hospital you know put it in a cast it's broke you know So when the bone is broke, it needs to be structurally stabilized. And once it's structurally stabilized, then we can work with some of the other things related to it, the energetics or herbals or treatments or qigong or all of the things that you can do. And then you can work with it at the level of the mind in terms of the tightness or the contraction or the tension that's around uh, something like that or even some of the patterning of what sets things up Why we end up, you know, tripping and falling in the first place. But if we're not ap- appropriate in our sequencing, then what we end up usually is, is something that either doesn't heal properly or is um, a difficulty. And what I find is, is that in some ways that's what we do in our meditation practice. So sometimes we can take like these universal application of suffering and we can apply it in situations where what's needed is something that's much more specific, and localized to the situation that we're dealing with. And one of the ways that this happens is in the use of trauma. So trauma is a specific um, thing that we experience any time we are in a situation where we feel our life is in danger and we can't escape. And so it's not so much that it's actually the case, it's the way we perceive it to be the case. And so when you look with children, sometimes they get... Totally freaked out by stuff, whereas an adult, you think, well, there's actually no reason for them to be so freaked. But they feel that way. And with certain kinds of medical procedures where, you know, kids are are, uh, held and anesthetized, and they don't know what's going on, and then they wake up out of the anesthesia, there's no one around. It's like, for them, life and death kind of stuff. And they are completely freaked out. And that kind of response is a physiological response. So if you're in a situation that you can't escape, you feel that you're in danger, your body goes into a kind of a mechanism, which is either a fight, a flight, or a freeze. And these are physiologically embedded in our systems, and they stay that way until they release. And so what can happen then is is that a person can have some kind of a traumatic event, and it doesn't properly release. And then there's triggers that happen again and again and again and again and again, again, where a person is reenacting something that tries to release or tries to allow it to release, but oftentimes there isn't the skill level that's needed in order to be present. And so then what happens is, is that the trauma ends up being a feature of one's life in terms of affecting one's behavior and one's perception and then be engaged in kind of reacting or reenacting situations with it again and again. And there's many, many different scenarios of the way this happens or how it happens. And it's also interesting. This is that you know, it, it doesn't have to be stuff that really seems that um, horrible to us if somebody else is perceiving it as life-threatening and they can't, don't feel that they can escape from it, that's all that's needed is the perception that there's that kind of danger rather than the actuality that that's in fact what's going on. So when this is actually stuff that we're dealing with, then it is in our bodies. And our body mechanisms then are influencing our thoughts, and our thoughts are influencing our habits and our patterns, and then that kind of sets up a cycle. There was a story that I heard um, So, um, of a person who, at 6.30 in the morning on July six, three years in a row, robbed a store and got arrested. And this was the third time that this happened. And it was like, each time you robbed a store, it was like for a bubble gum or a pencil or a... I mean, it was like, you don't rob a store for a bubble gum or a pencil, you know. And it was... Attempted armed robbery. So he would he would take his finger or or some kind of a something under a cloth and 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 stick him up and rob the place and come out with his bubble gum. (laughs) And the judge was smart. You know he'd done his reading and he'd done his homework and he looked at this. This was six thirty in the morning, July sixth, three consecutive years running. And rather than put him in the slammer for thirty years for the third offense he sent him to a person who understood trauma because that kind of sequencing doesn't usually happen for no reason you know and the trauma person found out in a very short period of time that at 6:30 in the morning on July 6 he was in the trench with his best friend who'd gotten shot in the back and died in his arms and there was something about the kind of of unescapability of that kind of grief that was embedded in his system that he was trying to figure out how to deal with and release and he had no tools to deal with it. And so it was just being acted out. Now one of the things which is known, absolutely statistically proven, is is that people with trauma have high incidence of addiction high incidence of aggression, high incidence with all kinds of other stuff. And so, you know, one of the things which has been really fascinating to me in the 12-step program is as I've never, ever heard, ever once heard trauma as a kind of correlate of what needs to be attended to in working with addiction. Never once heard it. And yet to me, if a large proportion of the people who are experiencing trauma end up with addictive patterning, then it seems like trauma is the place to work. So there are different models of working with trauma, and one of the ones that I really, really appreciate is worked out by a man by the name of Peter Levine, and he's got stuff around the country, and I think he comes to Boulder regularly and does stuff, and there's a couple of books that he's got out he's not working at it as a psychological modality. He's working at it as a physical one. He's looking at what happens physiologically when a person is traumatized, and how does one need to actually be present with that in order for it to release. So what is needed is to understand that when there's a trauma mechanism that's been activated, it's set up in one's nervous system. It does not. It's not interested in our thinking process. And our thinking process has very little effect on it. So when you take these transpersonal teachings that come out of Buddhism and try and use them to apply it to suffering, which is actually physiologically embedded, it has very little effect. One effect that it can have is it can give one perspective of a kind of a sense that suffering is universal. But it's a little bit like chanting when you've got a broken arm. It's not actually what's needed, you know? So what is then needed is to begin to get a sense of what trauma is, how it affects the system and how to bring attention to it for oneself and then how to create fields of support within communities and in friendship networks so that we can begin to start noticing it when it's appearing or being reenacted by our friends or in our community and what is required in order to support the resolution and release. And it's not that complicated. Obviously having training is helpful, but there's some basic things which are really kind of not that complicated to work out. So one of the things is, is, is that one needs to kind of check one's own emotional response about how one's dealing with all of this. So if one is kind of flying off the handle, then it's helpful to have a perspective which just allows a kind of sense of equilibrium to come into the present moment. One needs to work with bringing attention to the specifics of sensation, of texture, of color, of shape, of direction, and learn to cultivate the whole language of feeling and sensation as a way of bringing one's attention to that. And then recognizing that as one does that, particularly if what one is dealing with is some kind of a trauma, then oftentimes what happens is some kind of a release. And that release can be shaking or sweating or crying or hollering. And all of that is the body is kind of discharging energy that was kind of trapped in it. And there needs to be the way to both tolerate and allow, welcome and receive that without interfering it or stopping it or somehow having some kind of an overlay that this is not okay and it shouldn't be happening if i'm meditating i'm supposed to be calm you know i'm supposed to be still i'm supposed to be i'm supposed to be peaceful so all the stuff that's happening is somehow an interruption to my meditation so there needs to be the realization the recognition that this is actually the emergence of health that the stuck stuff the stuck energy the freeze mechanisms or the flight mechanisms or the fight mechanisms are beginning to discharge through one's body and that one needs to just tolerate the discomfort of that in order to let it come to some kind of completion. And then as it does, then the trauma related to it is not going to be embedded in one's system, so that one's not going to be having to reenact or be reactivated anytime a trigger happens. So we can learn in our own meditation practice how to cultivate the specifics that are needed to bring attention to this whole language of feeling in order to understand how this is affecting ourselves and then allow our bodies to do what they need to do and not be freaked by it and recognize that this is actually part of healing. And then as we are working with other friends, you know, so one friend was telling me about another friend. He was out mountain biking with his son, and it was up in the mountains high, and there was an electrical storm, and it was really terrifying because the lightning was really close. And the dad and the son both said their goodbyes to each other. They thought they'd had it. They thought it was curtains. And so this friend was talking to the other friend about saying how, you know, he can't go out when it's thundering. He doesn't want to ride his bike anymore. You know, his mind has been affected so that his life has changed. And so this other friend said, Peter, that's trauma. You're experiencing trauma. This is what trauma is like. You need to work with this in terms of trauma. So he began to flag that this is not just kind of a psychological problem that needs to be worked out. This is actually a bodily embedded thing that needs to be received and released. And so, if you are then getting a sense of where somebody's trauma is, and you're seeing it emerging, like if, in the same way with a kid, you know, if kids have a bad fall, you can relate to them in a way which can help release the accumulation, or can further embed it. And so knowing the difference between what helps release it and what helps embed it, obviously, if you're around kids, is a really, really good thing to know. But around all of us, it's a good thing to know, because one of the things that I find is is that trauma is a lot more prevalent than many of us realize. And it has a huge effect on many of our lives for a very, very long time and we're just not aware of it. So we're using other kinds of things to address stuff that needs something slightly different, and needs something quite specific. So if you're around somebody and you see that what's happening is a trauma inactivation or reactivation, what's needed is to become clear, check into oneself, to be as less emotionally reactive as you can be. So take your own inventory. Come to a place of settledness, quiet and calm, and then come into the other person's space, let them know that you're there to support it without in any way interfering. And help that person oscillate between bringing attention to the physical sensations that they're experiencing, as well as being able to shift their attention back and forth into a sense of relaxation and ease that they can access through bringing attention to different parts of their body. So standing or sitting and feeling the ground or the support around one or feeling the sense of the, of the you know, some people feel really connected to animals or feel connected to other people. And so one can use that in order to help give support so that there's a, the person is able to move back and forth between the sensations which are troubling and something which is grounding and centering and... Uh, able to handle it and as this is happening then what's needed for the support person is that sense of bearing witness and without interfering as well as encouragement that this is right this is good and this is actually what needs to happen so as we are able to do that for ourselves, and then as we're able to support each other in doing that more as a community, then we begin to start seeing that sometimes what we're doing in meditation practice is, is that we're using the wrong thing at particular times. So if you, you know, say to somebody who is dealing with trauma that suffering is universal, that's not helpful. Or that it'll change. You know, it does change, but that's not what's needed. Or that it's not personal. It doesn't belong to you. This is also true, and it's not at all helpful. And so what is needed is a kind of finesse to begin to figure out, well, what's what? And how do we deal with it? And how do we support each other in this way? Now, in the whole recovery world, it fascinates me that there has never been any development around the issue of trauma. Because to me, it's obvious that it's got to. If that's part of the reason where the addiction is coming from, that it has to go back to that as the source in order to relieve it. It has got to. And so, you know, I certainly know lots of people who found 12-step programs fantastic, but I also know lots of people that it doesn't touch. And for me, I think, hmm... Isn't this curious? (laughs) And so it seems to me that the people for whom this is a live, active topic, it would be interesting to start exploring how to put these pieces together so that recovery is actually touching the place where it's rooted. Now, I've lived in a monastery for many years, and I have never met any person in the monastery who hasn't had huge issues around trauma. Huge issues around trauma. And most of us, it's taken us a really long time even to get a sense of what it is. You know, so we come in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with these bright ideas about what meditation is going to be and monasticism and all the rest of that. And it takes a long time in order to have some of the layers to open up to begin to really seal with some of the things that we're working with and to develop the skill on how to respond to it and meet it. But a community that is able to do that for each other develops a kind of safety and a support that then allows the individuals to really start touching what is there to be touched. And that, to me, is tremendously powerful because that's where real practice begins, is when people are present for themselves and with each other, with where they really need to work. Now, for a community to develop the safety and the skills to be able to create the support to go there is not small. But no matter how much effort is required, it is worth its weight in gold. I mean, a a community that has the kind of safety and a sense of where each one is at and how to support each other in their own individual unfolding there's hardly anything in the world that is more precious than that because it's like we can't do it by ourselves so there's a way in which we each need to make our own effort but there's places where we're not actually seeing what is happening for us So, for example, this fellow who was robbing a bank three years in a row had no clue whatsoever what was going on to him. There was something that was driving him to do this behavior, but he had no clue about the mechanisms of cause and effect of how it was related. And there's lots of ways where we have aspects of our own understanding about ourselves in places where we're blind. And sometimes other people can see or support us having more clarity about our own process than we can ourselves. So appropriate object, appropriate response is a kind of koan in meditation. Meditation is not about clearing the decks and not feeling anything and going into a zombie state, you know, as if that's some kind of exalted experience that we're all trying to realize. It's about being clear with what's happening and how to receive it and meet it in a way that's appropriate and so certain things do really well with certain kinds of remedies or responses and other things need stuff that's totally different and the kind of finesse of being able to pick this stuff up and begin to get a sense of what's what and how to work with it is part of the skill of meditation And part of the skill of a community that feels a sense, well, this is actually a way out of suffering. But there isn't a kind of universal goo that you put on everything. You know, it needs a a kind of clarity about when do we pick certain stuff up and apply it and when not. So, you know. Where does this sit with you? How is this for you? What is your sense, you know? What is your own experience in terms of meditation and recovery and trauma? How does that get activated, reactivated? What tools do you have? You know what's of interest to you? So, I thought just to leave it there for now and to just we can break for a few minutes and stretch our legs, you can say hello to each other.